Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am covering in this audio, James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. James, at the end of his book here, is on a series of exhortations, earnest and fervent exhortations. Our context is this. At the end of James 4, he spoke against Christians speaking evil of a brother. James exhorted against boasting about tomorrow without putting your life into God's hands. At the first part of James 4, he warned against worldliness, friendship with the world, his enemy with God, and so forth. And so he's continuing with his exhortations. And in verse 12, he's going to warn evil rich people that they're about to be cows fattened up for the slaughter. And then he's going to talk about patience for the believers, the Hebrew Christian believers who are suffering. The context of this is is the run-up until the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, at least in my humble opinion. So we go down in James chapter 5, verse 1. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Now, these are not Christians, as the NIV Study Bible says, and Gil says, these are not rich Christians. These are what I call the evil rich. And you have to be careful here, because I remember when I was young, and I was going through the uh, going through a lot of political investigations and socialism was big like it is now and of course socialists would always say see being rich is evil and i think no wait a minute how how, how are you going to have accumulation of capital investment and spread of the middle class and and the spread of prosperity and unfortunately there's a lot of non-christians who are advocating this type of capitalism libertarian types who a lot of times didn't believe in god and so i was having all kinds of struggles over that and then it just I read somewhere, commentary, hey, this is not talking about rich people, rich Christians, talking about rich people in general. You can't stereotype the rich and say that they're all evil and they're all, or that, that they're all good. You cannot define somebody's moral worth by how much money they have. Same thing for poor people. A lot of times people say, oh, the poor are nice, humble people. Actually, sometimes poor are the meanest, nastiest people you ever will ever meet. But we tend to do that. We tend to stereotype people. So let's just be clear here. James is talking about rich people who do not love God, more specifically rich people who were in the charge of the Jewish economy before the Romans came and wiped them out. Weep and wail over the miseries that are coming to you. What miseries? Well, as I said, those are the miseries of the coming Jewish war, the destruction of Jerusalem in eighty seventy. Now, Adam Clark agrees with me on that. John Gill denies that. He says, hey, the letter was written to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, not to the Jews in Jerusalem. Well, what people don't realize is that when Jerusalem goes down in AD 70, all of the synagogues that were dependent upon Jerusalem for moral guidance all throughout the Roman Empire, they went down too. Nobody's going to go to the synagogues anymore. Oh, you want to be a Jew? You want to join up with our religion that just got snuffed out by the Romans? Adam Clark agrees with me that this is referring to the destruction of Jerusalem. Quote from Adam Clark, quote, St. James seems to refer here in the spirit of prophecy to the destruction that was coming upon the Jews, not only in Judea, but in all the provinces where they sojourned. Now, the spirit of prophecy, well, it could be prophecy, but remember Jesus had told them, before this generation passes away, not one stone of the temple would be left standing on top of the other. So it could be he's just listening to Jesus and saying, well, you know, Jerusalem's going to go down at some point within one generation. James is writing about in the 40s. So, you know, 20, 30 years from now, it's all going down. And this idea that Gil has is that the Jews in the dispersion would not be 
affected by warnings against the destruction of Jerusalem. Well, think about this. This is my analogy. Let's think, of, think about a Muslim living in Syria, and he's told that Mecca is going to be destroyed. Well, he doesn't live in Mecca. He doesn't live in Saudi Arabia. But you don't think he'd be affected by Mecca going down and burning up? Of course he would. Let me read another quote from Clark backing me up on this. This was literally true, this miseries is coming upon the rich. This was literally true, and these solemn denunciations of divine wrath were most completely fulfilled. Were. 8070. See the notes on Matthew 24, that's all of it, discourse, where all the circumstances of this tremendous and final destruction are particularly noted. By the last days we are not to understand the day of judgment, but the last days of the Jewish commonwealth, which were not long distant from the date of this epistle. Now, some people say this is not the miseries that are coming on the evil rich are not the miseries that the Jewish war brought on, but rather are the miseries of hell that are coming on you. If you want to believe that, that's fine, but that ain't what James is talking about, I don't think. But either way, you're not, your riches are not going to last. You know, James has already mentioned the rich earlier, earlier in his book, James 2.2. For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor man dressed in dirty clothes also comes in. There I was assuming the rich man was a Christian, but might not have been, might have been a visitor. James 2.6, you dishonored the poor man, that poor man. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Now, I didn't mention that when I was in James 2. I wish I had of. A rich Christian is not going to drag another Christian into court. So that means that the evidence is that the rich people that are oppressing you and that were dishonoring, that were by their by their obtaining of, of favored seats in the in the house church there, that dishonoring of the poor man was done by rich non-Christians because it's rich non-Christians that were dragging the people in the court. But whoever it is, whoever it was back in James 2, right here in James 5, is talking about rich non-Christians. I don't think James would talk about weeping well over the miseries that God's going to do on you, your, his Christian children. Now, someone might object to that and say, but isn't James writing to Christians? In my previous audios, I pulled it out many times. How many times James says, brothers, brothers, brothers? He does it a good many times. The NIV Study Bible answers that and says, well, James is writing in the style of Old Testament prophets. Old Testament prophets often declare judgment against God's enemies in books addressed to God's people. And they give about five examples, which I won't quote for you. So James could just be giving a denunciation of evil rich people in general. He's not talking about Christians, Hebrew Christians that he's writing to. And I think that's, that's reasonable. Now, what application can we make from this? First of all, it is foolish to say that all rich Christians are sinning or that it is a sin to be rich. Abraham was one of the richest people you ever saw. Paul, on the other hand, was poor. God does not judge our moral wealth by the size of your bank account. He'll give you what you need. And if you happen to be a capitalist like Abraham... Well, he was a pre-capitalist, but he was, uh, let's put it this way, he knew what he was doing with the shekels, and he made a lot of them, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that, but it is a sin to be stingy and not give. What did Paul tell Timothy? I think it was Timothy. Yeah, it was Timothy. Tell the rich to give from the abundance of their resources to give to the poor. John Gill makes the point, even amongst rich people who are not Christians, there are some good men. And how about Sam Walton? He was a Christian. He was a good man. There's lots. Of, John D. Rockefeller was a good man. Paul Letourneau, the earth-dealing, earth-moving equipment capitalist. There's nothing wrong with being rich. But by golly, if you don't pay your workers on time, like James is going to get to here in a minute, and if you drag them into court and you shame them 
and you make fun of them, they ain't no place in hell too deep for you, my friend. Nothing worse than that. People that have a lot of money have a great stewardship, and they need to use it, that money wisely. They need to invest it and provide jobs for people. They need to give to charity. And people like the sojourners, those liberal evangelicals who love to rant and rave about how great socialism is does while they conveniently ignore Venezuela and communist China before it turned to capitalism and Russia and Europe and Detroit and California. They, they ignore all the m miseries that socialism produces and they look at these verses and they say, ah, oh, see, they are rich people are evil. No, they're not. We go to James 5, verse 2. Your wealth is ruined and your clothes are moth-eaten. Now, one of the main forms of wealth in the ancient world was clothes. So that's why when it says your clothes are moth-eaten, it's not just talking about your, your T-shirt. It's talking about all those fancy linen and brocaded and silver-threaded and gold-threaded fancy garments you got that you stored up as wealth. And we and we put them in the closet, and the moths came in there and ate them all up. What he's referring to is that's what's going to happen in 870 when your precious Jerusalem is burnt like toast. Your wealth is ruined. It's gone. That would include not only clothes, but also the produce of the field that, were laid, that, that was laid up in granaries. That would also include flocks. All of that was slaughtered and destroyed in the Jewish war in 8070, 8066 through 70. It can't be gold, precious, silver, or precious stones because they can't rot or putrefy. That word there, your wealth is ruined, the Greek is rot or putrefy, according to Adam Clark. Well, so gold and silver can't do that. But in the ancient world, clothes and flocks and crops could be destroyed by moths and by rot. Matthew 6, 19, verses Matthew 6, verses 19 and 20, Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. A thief can break in and steal your gold and your silver, or the moth destroys your clothes, which again was a store of ancient wealth, and rust, that could refer to mildew blight that, that eats up the crops. I used to wonder, how can gold rust? Well, it's not talking about gold rusting. It's talking about grain rusting, or maybe clothes sometimes can break out with some kind of some kind of infection like that, but not gold or silver. Verse 20, Matthew 6, But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. The thieves don't break in and steal the gold and silver. The moth doesn't destroy the cloth. The rust doesn't destroy the crops or the cloth. James 5, 3, Your silver and gold are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. Now, here... I just finished saying silver and gold can't rust. And here James says it's corroded. He's speaking metaphorically because he says in the same verse, the silver and gold will eat your flesh like fire. Well, obviously silver and gold doesn't eat anybody's flesh. He's talking metaphorically here. So what he's saying is that silver and gold that you thought was so beautiful was never going to rust. Oh, yes, it did. It's going to when, it, when the room is coming here and wipe out your city and you're going to be starving to death and you won't have enough. You won't have two shekels to rub together. That is metaphorically how silver and gold get tarnished. Now, once when I was trying to literally prove that gold could corrode or rust, I looked up on the Internet and found out that that gold cannot rust, which, of course, rust means to combine, to, oxygenize, to oxidize, to combine with oxygen. Gold cannot rust at normal temperature and pressure. You can make it under extreme temperatures, but gold coins will turn a light brown. I don't. It's not really rust, but it gets, it gets a... I've got some gold coins, and they don't shine like the gold you see in Tutankhamen's tomb. <laughs> but 
They just kind of look like a bronze copper penny. They're not bright gold. I don't know why. I don't think it's rust. But at any rate, that doesn't matter. The point is, is that James is talking metaphorically. Your gold and silver are going to be gone. You stored up treasure in the last days, and then it's gone. Last days, you stored up treasure at the end of time before Jesus comes back at the second coming? No. Well, of course, that's one option to read last days at the end of the world. For example, Romans 2.5 can be read that way. But because of your hardness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. Since he's talking to Romans, the Roman church had both Jews and Christians in it, but it it sounds like he's talking about the final day of judgment there. It doesn't really t- sound like he's talking about eighty seventy. But here in chapter 5 in James, I don't think there's any question he's talking about the end of the Jewish state in AD 70. First of all, last days, to show you that this is a life option, last days does not always mean the last days at the end of the world. Hebrews 1, 2. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son. The author of Hebrews is obviously talking about the days in which the gospel has come to us and spoken to us about Jesus Christ in these last days. In the last days that I'm standing in right now, as I write, as the author of the book of Hebrews writes, that's the last days. It's the last days of the Jewish state. He was writing in the 80s, 60s. The Jewish state was about, to get to, get to, was about to be wiped out in 8070, so that would be the last days. And so that's what James is referring to here. You stored up treasure in the last days, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, and then go get wiped out in 8070. And, and the years preceding that, 8070. And to finish up this argument, James 5.8, which we'll get to in a few verses, James says this, You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. N-E-A-R. Near. Now, if I told you that my approach to you, my coming to you is near, and I show up 2,000 years later, you'd call me a liar, wouldn't you? Or a fool. It's not talking about the end of the world. It's talking about Jesus' coming in judgment on Jerusalem, which was near. Now, James metaphorically says that the evil riches' wealth would eat their flesh like fire. Now, I've got a good quote from James Clark here as to how, how that happens to the evil riches' flesh. Quote, Becoming a canker that should produce gangrenes and phygenous ulcers. Now, I don't know what a phygenous ulcer is, but it sounds horrible. Adam Clark was a polymath. He knew everything, and he was big into... 19th century medicine. He always used these big medical terms that, of course, have long since passed out of use, but they sound kind of quaint when you use them. All right, so let's continue here with this Jeremy ad against the evil rich. James 5, 4. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who reaped your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Can you imagine working all day in that hot Mediterranean sun? And then when it gets time to get paid, you go and the rich owner of the field says, so sorry, I'm not going to pay you today. Now, remember, harvesters are going to be poor people. They don't have reserves of savings backing them up. They got to get paid. This reminds me so much. My father was a poor man himself. He grew up. His father drove a bread truck and he was a self-made man, picked himself up by his own bootstrap, started his own construction company, ended up making a pretty good bit of money. Man, I admire him for that. He was an atheist, unfortunately. But I remember as I was growing up, and I'm a little kid, and and he's going through the pains of starting a small business and having a family and having all that pressure on him. He would say, you got to meet payroll, Dan. You have to meet payroll. You have to pay your workers. All other debts are put on hold. You got a supplier that you have to pay. You pay your workers first. 
I'll never forgot that. It was like a religion with him. You got to meet payroll. And he paid every Friday. He paid his workers every Friday. Because you don't do that, those workers are poor. They're manual laborers, and they don't have any savings. And what are they going to do for the next week? And I believe that God honored my father because he was very honest, even though he was an atheist. He was very honest about money. He didn't cheat anybody ever, and he paid his workers. There's nothing worse than not paying your workers, folks, and this is what James is saying. This was actually a violation of the law not to pay your workers, Deuteronomy 24:15. You are to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. See, he doesn't have any savings. He's got to live daily. He's, eating, he's living hand to mouth. Otherwise, he will cry out to the Lord against you, and you will be held guilty. Leviticus 19.13 You must not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages due a hired hand must not remain with you until morning. Every day. Payday was every day in the ancient world back then in Israel. is every week in South Carolina. It might still be. I don't know. But the point is, when payday comes, you pay him. These evil rich people were not paying. Their outcry has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Ooh, that's a majestic term that James calls God. Host. What is a, ho a host? Is a whole heap of, a whole bunch of, a multitude of. Could be a host of men, could be a host of angels, as Gill says. More particularly, Clark says it's a military term because it's a host of soldiers. I think it's a host of angels. Usually, that's what it is in the Old Testament, is my impression anyway. It's a frequent name for God in the Old Testament. It's used all the time in the Old Testament. And one commentator said that although James writes in Greek, he thinks in Hebrew because he's so Jewish. And so he just, when he thinks of God, he thinks of the Lord of hosts. Now, what does the Lord of hosts signify that term? Adam Clark says it signifies his uncontrollable power, his infinitely numerous means he has for governing the world, which would include punishing wicked people who don't pay their labors in time. You'd better not mess with the God of hosts by not paying your labors because judgment's coming, which it did in AD 70. This phrase, Lord of hosts, interesting little tidbit, factual tidbit here. Jameson Fawcett Brown points out that this phrase, Lord of hosts, the only time it's used in the New Testament directly is right here. It's used sometimes by being quoted in another Old Testament verse, but just being used straight out. This is the only time. That's because James is so Jewish. James 5, verse 5, you... James continues to gripe about the evil rich. You have lived luxuriously on the land and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. The day of slaughter, as I said, is the end of Jerusalem in AD 70. And the metaphor is a very nice metaphor. Think about that cow sitting there eating all that alfalfa and enriched grain and, and green grass. I don't know. I'm not a farmer. I don't know what cows eat, but I, the farmer feeds him all this stuff and the equivalent of humans eating steak and hamburgers and hot dogs, and that cow's looking at all his steak and saying, oh, my gosh, this is great. Oh, my God, oh, I better stop eating this. I'm going to get fat. I don't care. I'm going to eat it anyway, and the, cat, cat, and the cow gets fatter and fatter. Well, why is the farmer being so nice to him? Because the farmer's getting ready to put him in a slaughterhouse and extinguish him from the land of the living. And this is what's going to happen to these rich Jewish persecutors of the church and and persecutors of their fellow Jews is they're going to get wiped out for the day of slaughter. That's the day of judgment in Jerusalem, AD 70. When a cow is eating and getting fat, he is totally oblivious to the destruction that's coming on him in that slaughterhouse. And likewise, these rich people were totally oblivious, but not the Christians, because the Christians had Jesus as a warning in the Olivet Discourse. He told them that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. In fact, he told them to get out of town when you see the armies the abomination that causes desolation, the army surrounding Jerusalem, head out of town, which they did. And they didn't get destroyed. They didn't get slaughtered, but the rich people in Jerusalem did. They got slaughtered. James 5, verse 6. You have condemned, you have murdered the righteous man. He does not resist you. Now, 
some people say the righteous man that these rich people killed was Jesus. No, I don't think so. I think that's no. People who say this come up with the idea because Jesus is called the righteous one in Acts 3.14, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you, Acts 7.52. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, Stephen says? They even killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. So the righteous one is the title of the Messiah. And so when these people, these commentators say, you have murdered the righteous man, the righteous one, you've murdered the Messiah. He does not resist you. Jesus voluntarily went upon the cross and didn't resist. Well, that's not, that's, that's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's view. I don't believe it. John Gill denies that's the proper interpretation. So if it's not, if that's not the interpretation, then what does James mean? You have murdered the righteous man. Well, when did rich people actually murder innocent people? Well, John Gill suggests that perhaps the rich obtained judicial process against them and judicially murdered them. Gill says maybe they censored and condemned the poor. The evil rich censored and condemned the poor man. John Gill says maybe the rich, evil rich refused to pay the poor, so and, or, and, and so that would make the poor people miserable. The problem with all that, it all seems so metaphorical, but James seems to me like he's talking literally. You have murdered the righteous man. Adam Clark says it is literal. He says the rich, the unrighteous rich, the evil rich had the poor condemned and executed. And I wonder on what grounds. I mean, if that's true, if that's literal, these people were not just unrighteous. They were filthy, evil monsters to do that. I have a feeling that James was talking metaphorically here. It's hard for me to, to think that people would be that evil, go around murdering people. What's the motive? I mean... Poor people don't have anything on you. They, they're not competing with you for positions of political power. They're not stealing your wives. You need them to work in your fields. Why would you murder them? I don't see the motive there. So I think that James is talking metaphorically. You murdered the righteous man by just treating him bad. It might be a little hyperbolical, but that's okay. That's the way Jews are. They, they're very hyperbolic in their writings, and I think James might be doing that here. The poor do not resist the evil rich when they are murdered. However you take the word murdered, the poor righteous man does not resist because he had no power to resist. Now, that does not mean that an oppressed person shouldn't resist if he does have the power. Absolutely. I believe in self-defense. Remember, Jesus gave the swords to the disciples as they were going out. And pacifists always stumble on this thing, and they have all kind of fancy theology to get around it. But Jesus gave them swords. Now, why would you give swords to your disciples? To defend yourself against people who attack you. To resist them, in other words. So... This idea of turning the other cheek is only when people are slandering you or taking away your honor. It does not mean you're not supposed to defend yourself because you're basically executing a defense, a police action when the police aren't there, when you defend yourself. So let's be careful, pacifist, about this non-resistance idea. That is something that's going to get you or me killed one day. Reminds me, Hudson Taylor was attacked viciously by an uproar in Qing Dynasty, China. And he just told his missionaries, however you see it, you want to not resist, you can not resist. But if you want to get a gun, get a gun. I just bought a gun. We've had a bunch of civil unrest in America. And I said, you know what, I'm going to get a gun. I got it. I hardly know how to shoot it. I got to be trained on it a little bit more. But if somebody comes to my house and threatens to kill my wife, bang, bang. I have no problem with that. But these poor people, they don't have the power to resist. And so when you're in that situation, there's no point. If your boss has got power over you and he's abusing you, you can't resist him. What are you going to do? If you resist him, he'll make things worse. The only option is, in a capitalistic society, of course, is to go find another job. 
That is the leverage that you have against unrighteous bosses, and there are plenty of them. And that is a powerful weapon, the threat of quitting. Because I, I just love to see these big shop managers begging for workers. I love it. That means a booming economy. Workers have a right to go where they want to, and the, and the companies have to go before the workers, the potential workers, the applicants, and say, oh, we can give you all these benefits and all these privileges, and we have the perfect workplace, and you only have to work 20 hours a week, and all the people here just love each other, you know, and all this BS that the Human Resource Man uh, Department gives you. Why? Because they need workers. So you do have the power to resist in that situation. But back then, it was not a capitalistic society. It was sort of like a, I don't know if you'd say feudal. It was very agricultural, and poor agricultural workers couldn't resist the rich. And that's a shame. And James is pointing that out as saying this is a sad thing that this has happened. But he's not saying that if he did have the power to resist, he shouldn't resist. James 5, 7 through 9, Therefore, brothers, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the freshest fruit, fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. Look, the judge stands at the door. Verse 7, therefore, brothers, be patient. What's the therefore, therefore? James is referring back to the suffering of the poor Christians by their rich oppressors, which we just talked about in verses 1 through 6. Because the rich are oppressing you, brothers. Now he's talking about Christian poor, the Christian poor who are being oppressed by the evil rich. Therefore, be patient until the Lord's coming. In other words, the Lord's going to come at 8070 before that generation passes away that Jesus talked about when not one stone is going to be left on the temple standing one stone upon the other, and they are all going to be wiped out all you got to do is tough it out until then. Be patient. Be patient means to be endure. Endure until he comes. Now, John Gill denies that this is the coming in AD 70. I think he's completely wrong. Adam Clark agrees with me. This is the judgment coming in AD 70. First of all, in verse 8, it says the Lord's coming is near. N-E-A-R, near. The Lord's coming is near. 2,000 plus years is near. I don't think so. Behold, the judge stands at the door in verse 9. Stands at the door? 2,000 plus years? I don't think so. Here's what Adam Clark says, quote, He is already on his way to destroy this wicked people, to raise their city and temple, and to destroy their polity forever, and this judgment will soon take place. Now, the NIV study Bible unfortunately agrees with Gill and says this is referring to the second coming of Christ. I think that's completely erroneous. Again, I would ask the editors of the Bible there that wrote that study Bible, Stand at the door 2,000 plus years later? His coming is near? N-E-A-R 2,000 plus years later? Please don't make me laugh. That doesn't pass the risibility test. Now John Gill comes up with another idea. He doesn't go for the second coming. I don't think he does. But he suggests another option is the Lord judge is standing at the door when you die. Don't be judged because the Lord is coming for you at your death. Well, that's, that's a better option than the second coming because one's death could be near. So I'll at least grant that doesn't that that passes the risibility test that passes the laugh test, but I still don't think that's right. I think he's talking about eighty seventy. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until he receives the early and late rains. Now this is a metaphor about farmers who have to wait for a crop. The early rain is the rain in October. Marcus Vaughn is the Jewish month October, soon after the grain is sown, and the late rains are the spring rains in Nisan in March, just prior to harvest. We see this in the law, Deuteronomy 11:14. I will provide rain for your land in the proper time, the autumn and spring rains. The autumn rains, the early rain in October, and the spring rain 
is in Nisan in the spring, autumn and spring. Jeremiah 5.24, They have not said to themselves, Let's fear the Lord our God who gives the rain both early and late. The early rain is in October, in the fall, and the late rain is in the spring. Zechariah 10.1, Ask the Lord for rain in the season of spring rain. That's the latter rain in King James English, the latter rain, the spring rain, the late rain. Let me mention here an unfortunate movement. You know, the charismatic movement is great at springing, springing forth heresies like the word of faith, blab it and grab it, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, scream it and redeem it, haul it and call it. Word of faith, Copenhagenism, which is a terrible, ridiculous Joel Osteen heresy. But there was another one back there in the early days of the charismatic movement when I was involved in it called the Latter Rain Movement. This was back in the 40s. And they were always talking about the latter rain. That means all these latter rain type revivalistic movements, they talk about things are, are dead. The church is dead. Well, hey, you got that right. And so then God is going to pour forth his spirit and end times revival. And the spirit's going to come. And that's going to be the latter rain right before Jesus comes back. Well, the latter rain movement is full of bull too, unfortunately. And that is not as bad, in my opinion, as the Joel Osteen excrement. But it's still bad. And... When they say latter rain, it had nothing to do with the Old Testament scriptures. Talking about the latter rain, it's talking about rain. It's not talking about a revival at the end of time. It's talking about rain that rained on the crops. And they would make this as a big type or big metaphor and say it referred to their movement where God was going to restore the kingdom through those that little band of marginalized nut jobs. And I'll tell you another thing that got me about the latter rain. Who was the guy? I can't remember the guy's name. He thought he was Elijah. He's still around. Got missionaries in India, and the name slips my mind. But I do remember, like a guy named A. A. Allen was in the latter rain. He would preach drunk. All of these. It's also called the healing revival, and I don't want to get off on that because I, there's too many people that jump on faith healers and say how healing is not for today. And, and you know, I, I don't want to do that. But I will say this: there was a lot of unconfessed, obvious sin in the in the lives of a lot of these revivalists. In fact, these latter rain people. In fact, one time I saw a video by a guy, named, a guy named Roberts Learden who was talking about how you've got to avoid all the sins of these preachers. They had a powerful healing ministry and then they destroyed their ministry by God, by uh, gold or girls or glory, one of the three. And then years later, that that tape impressed me so much that years later I found out that Mr. Learden had had a homosexual relationship with a member of his church. Didn't exactly practice what he preached. Well, anyway, that's enough discursion on the latter rain movement. Just stick to the Bible, folks. You're much better off. Now, one more piece of evidence that shows that James is referring to the coming of judgment on the evil rich in AD 70 during the Jewish war is this reference in Matthew 24:33, the Olivet Discourse, which, if you hold to an Orthodox preterist view, which I do, slam dunk, Jesus is talking about the coming of himself to judge Jerusalem. He says in Matthew 24:33, in the same way, when you see all these things, all the things that he mentioned in the Olivet Discourse, recognize that he is near at the door. Does that sound familiar? Near, N-E-A-R, at the door. And James said he's standing at the door. James is referring to what Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. He's referring to what Jesus said, that not one stone would be left on top of another stone before that generation passed away. And James knows that Jesus spoke the truth, and he knows that Jerusalem is about to be judged, and he knows that all these evil, rich people, who these horrible people who killed Jesus and who murdered the prophets and who are going to persecute the Christians from synagogue to synagogue, he knows they're about to go down. 
How could anybody, how could the NIV study Bible say that this refers to the second coming? It just does not. Now, this fear of the soon coming judgment should make the brothers there, verse 9, brothers do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged. That, of course, refers to what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge so that you won't be judged. I wouldn't be surprised if Jesus, if James was quoting Jesus there in Matthew 7, 1. Now, when Jesus says do not judge, he doesn't mean don't ever make a judgment. He means do not judge unrighteously because in John 7:24 we hear Jesus saying stop judging according to outward appearances, rather judge according to righteous judgment. There, God commands you to, uh, Jesus commands you to judge with righteous judgment. So you've got to be careful with your adjectives there. Don't be judged unrighteously. We go now to verses 10 and 11 of James 5. Brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome from the Lord. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Now remember, in the previous verse, James is using an agricultural metaphor. A farmer has to wait for the crops. He has to endure. And likewise, you suffering, persecuting Hebrew Christians are going to have to wait for your deliverance. But if you just wait, you'll get a crop. The farmer gets a crop. You're going to get deliverance from your persecutors. Now, besides farmers, now he looks at prophets who endured. They were an example of suffering and patience. An example. You need to follow their example. You need to suffer and endure. Patience means endurance. You need to suffer and endure. John Gill says the sufferings were, quote, cruel mockings, scourgings, imprisonment, famine, nakedness, death in various shapes, some being stoned, others sawn asunder, and others killed by the sword. He's quoting, of course, from Hebrews 11, which was also written to Jewish Christians who were being persecuted in the 80s, Jesus refers to this evil Jerusalem persecuting the prophets. Matthew 5:12. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible says that these prophets were an example of suffering and patience. The NIV, instead of patience, has perseverance. And perseverance is a better translation, in my humble opinion. Job wasn't patient. Using our normal English word patient, patient means you do endure, but it has the idea of you, you, you tolerate something for a while with equanimity. Job wasn't really patient. Job, let me give you some examples. Job 12, verses 1 through 3. Then Job answered. The reason I use Job as an example is because everybody, there's an expression in English. This person has the patience of Job. Well, that's using King James English. In modern English, we should say that person has the endurance of Job. Job 12, 1 through 3. I'm going to give you three verses that show that show that Job was not patient in our normal sense of the word patient, in our modern sense. Then Job answered, no doubt you are the people, he's talking to his false friends, and wisdom will die with you, he's being sarcastic. But I also have a mind, I'm not inferior to you, who doesn't know the things you're talking about? Job was impatient with his false friends. Job 16, 1 through 3, then Job answered, I've heard many things like these, you are all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying he doesn't sound like he's being patient with his false friends how about job 21 verse 4 as for me is my complaint against a man it's against god not against a man then why shouldn't i be impatient job confesses he's impatient with god so the patience of job is not what we should say we need to say the perseverance of job or the endurance of job now job did persevere he wasn't patient in our modern sense of the word but he did persevere job 1 20 through 22 then job stood up tore his robe and shaved his head he fell to the ground and worshiped saying naked i came from my mother's womb and naked i will live this leave this life the lord gives and the lord takes away praise the name of yahweh through all 
Throughout all this, Job did not sin or blame God for anything. Job did not sin, didn't blame God. Job 2, verses 9 through 10. His wife, that's Job's wife, said to him, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he, Job, told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Through all, throughout all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So he endured. Job 13:15. even if he kills me, even if Yahweh, God, kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Job endured. He could not understand why things were so bad around him, but he still loved his God. So he did persevere, but he was impatient. And the application of this is when things go bad as they inevitably will, when you enter into one of your trials, you will be impatient about it. You might be uh, irritable about it. You wish it was over. But that doesn't mean you haven't endured. Because you endure, you still believe in Jesus, you still pray to him every day. And when you come out on the other side, you praise him for his deliverance. And you love him more than you did before you went in the trial. But you were impatient when you went through it. Let's face it. Nobody likes a trial. It's very hard to be patient. I want it over, Lord. How long is this going to go on? So you can be impatient, but you can still endure and persevere. And, I, and I'm not saying that it's a good thing to be impatient. I'm just saying that it happens. And you don't need to feel like you haven't endured just because you've gotten impatient about something. Again, James is using Job, as, and just as he used the farmers, as an example of endurance, of having to wait to see the outcome, Job's outcome. What was the Job's outcome? Well, he had doubled his possessions, which is kind of interesting because uh, this is in Job 42.10. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his prosperity and doubled his previous possessions. See there, he endured. But I've, there's a cynical part of me that says, yeah, but he lost all his family members. He didn't get those back. Well, they were in heaven. I guess you could look at it that way. That just seems such a sort of a materialistic way of looking at that tragedy that Job went through. I never have really quite grabbed a hold of that yet. But anyway, Job endured. The Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Oh, my gosh. That's something we ought to always remember when you go through a trial. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. You ought to repeat that, self, repeat that phrase to yourself as a mantra. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. It's the devil doing this to me, or it's the evil sin in the world by evil people that are doing this to me, or both, but it's not God. What he's doing is sustaining me and giving me endurance and perseverance to get through this mess. And by the way, when we say we're blessed by endurance, it says in verse 11, James says, See, we count as blessed those who have endured the persecution itself is really not the blessing. That's not what makes us happy. It's the endurance. It's the endurance after having gotten through the trial that, that blesses us. I think people are a little bit flippant, a little bit not precise enough when they say, oh, we're in a trial. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. That's not, that's not normal, folks. You go into a trial, you need to show some sympathy. I remember one time there was this young man who was in high school with me. I didn't know him well, but he showed up at a church. Years later, and he was all screwed up. He had done a lot of drugs, and he was, I don't know, he was suicidal or something. And so I was talking to him, and I, I gave him a flippant answer about it. Oh, God's going to take care of that. That's nothing to worry about. Boy, that guy bit my head off. He says, you don't know what it's like. I showed that guy no empathy, no compassion, no understanding. I never did drugs. I didn't know what bad, how bad it was. And boy, ooh, I'll never forget that. I was so guilty. I had to I prayed to God for months after that. Please, God, forgive me for how stupid I was to talk to that brother that way or that man that way. I don't even know if he was saved. So I think I said something like, oh, this is a blessing for you that you went through all this stuff. Yeah, don't ever tell somebody that. The blessing is the endurance, not the trial itself. 
We go now to verse 12, and we'll finish up this section. James 5, verse 12. Now, above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Your yes must be yes, and your no must be no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Now, this apparently is a changing topic from suffering persecution from the evil rich. It looks like a direct quote from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the fourth antithesis, so-called antithesis, you have heard it said, but I say unto you, it shows that Jesus was changing. Well, if you're a New Covenant theology person like I am, he's changing Moses and elevating Moses to a higher law, the law of Christ. Matthew 5, 33 through 37, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by the earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more from this is from the evil one. Now, I mentioned the, the dispute and how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount between covenant theology and new covenant theology. Covenant theology says that Jesus is just griping about how, or complaining about how the Pharisees have perverted Moses, and so he, re, he refutes the Pharisees. He says, you have heard it said from the Pharisees, but I say to you, the Pharisees are wrong. Well, new covenant theology people say, that in these antitheses in the Summer on the Mount, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said from Moses, but I say to you, I'm going to give you a higher law than Moses. There's your conflict. Well, in this particular example, though, covenant theology and new covenant theology agree because it's obvious that Jesus is complaining about how the Pharisees perverted oath-taking. What they would say is, let me give one example I can remember, is they would say, if you swear by the gold in the temple, you're swearing is good your vow is good so if I, 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 I vow to pay you a hundred dollars for that cow I swear I will pay you by the gold in the temple that's a good vow and it's enforceable at law but if you just say I swear by the temple that I will pay you the hundred dollars for that cow that's not enforceable at law that's not a valid vow and the rationale behind that was well gold has to do with commerce but the temple is spiritual and we don't want to, to mix God up with spiritual transactions which, of course, is a stupid, idiotic, pharisaical, hair-splitting distinction. And so Jesus is saying, get rid of all that stuff. So there he is complaining about the Pharisees. And this was a Jewish practice of doing these hair-splitting oaths. Swear by the earth. I can't remember now. One is good and one is bad. Swear by the earth, and that's good or bad. But you swear by heaven, that's the opposite. That kind of stuff. Don't do that. That was a Jewish practice, and James is complaining about Jewish practices here. He was not, of course, prohibiting all swearing. Solemn oaths are perfectly okay. For example, in Hebrews 6.13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. Now you could say, well, that's all right for God to swear, but what about humans? Well, how about this? Matthew 26.63-64. But Jesus kept silent. This is at Jesus' trial before the Jewish authorities on trial for his life. Then the high priest said to him, By the living God I place you under oath. Ooh, in other words, swear to me. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said it, Jesus told him. In other words, amen, brother. Amen, yes. I'm swearing to you that I am the Messiah. So Jesus took an oath. That was a serious oath. That's a solemn oath. Flippant oaths are not okay. As then I've studied the Bible says, flippant use of God's name or a sacred object to guarantee truth of what's spoken. That's not, that's a flippant oath. I swear by the crack in my mother's back. I mean, that's a stupid oath. That's a flippant oath. Gill says they're rash oaths, profane swearing. 
For example, when people say, by God, I'll pay you, and they don't even believe in God, that's a flippant oath. And when somebody gives a flippant oath or a rash oath, what they do is they devalue the solemn oath. Exodus 27 says this, Do not misuse the name of the Lord your God, because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. Now, misusing his name could, could be done in a lot of ways, I'm sure, but one way is to swear by God when you don't mean it. That's why it just bugs me, people on, on, the, on the internet. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. On movies. Oh, my God. Just saying that all the time. They don't, I had to tell some Chinese Christians who, of course, you know, they're influenced by their American and English teachers. And they would say, oh, my God. What they say in Chinese is Tiana, which means, uh, oh, heavens, which is a little bit better. But it's the same idea. And so they would go around in English saying, oh, my God. And I'd tell them, don't do that. That's not respecting God. That's not reverencing God. You know, I mentioned this, this a few details, and I'll finish up here. James all of a sudden talks about not taking frivolous oaths here. What has that got to do with the previous context about the evil rich? Here's a good quote from Adam Clark. What relation this exhortation can have to the subject in question, I confess I cannot see. It may not have been designed to stand in any connection, but to be a separate piece of advice, as in the several cases which immediately follow. And I think that's the answer. There is no context here that means anything. Every now and then that happens. I mean, I know people overlook context too much. A text without a context is a pretext. I believe in that, but sometimes you can't, the context means nothing to you. Now, Jameson Fawcett and Brown tried to make a connection between the previous few verses. They say that the suffering just mentioned coming from the evil rich might make the Christians be tempted to swear. Oh, God, curse these rich, evil, rich people. That could be. Who knows? But at any rate, the application is let your yes be yes. Let be so. Let your character be so good that when you say you're going to pay, you're going to pay. I mean, the typical contract today, you don't swear a solemn oath that you're going to pay the money, and you deal with an honest businessman or businesswoman. You are dealing basically on your name that your yes is yes and your no is no. And when you build up a track record of paying your debts, people will trust you. They don't need the fancy oaths. Ladies and gentlemen, I am now finished with James 5, verses 1 through 12. In our next audio, we'll take up James 5, 13 through 20. We'll finish the book of James. That will be concerning the prayer of faith, which involves a lot of interesting stuff if you used to have been in the faith movement, Copenhagenism, because these verses are used a lot by those gentlemen to teach their heresy as they twist what James meant by faith. So that ought to be interesting. Hope to see you in our next audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.